A note before we begin. Today's case is still open and active. If you have information that can help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. In homicide investigations, one of the first things police do is look into the victim's inner circle. These people help point the investigation in the right direction. And unfortunately, more often than not, one of those closest to the victim is outed as the guilty party. But in today's case, an entire town felt like the victim's inner circle. She was a local news anchor, gracing every TV every day. And it was the 90s, so everyone watched TV news. If you lived in Mason City, Iowa in 1995, you knew her name and face. The question is, when everyone knows who you are, how do you disappear? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I want you to meet a 27-year-old woman who in 1995 didn't show up to work one day and hasn't been seen since. All evidence points to foul play, but her friends and family are still waiting for answers. Her name is Jody Husentrude. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It's November 1994, seven months before Jody Husentrout disappears. She's out for a jog around her neighborhood in Mason City, Iowa, and she thinks she's being followed. A white pickup truck keeps popping up on her route. It has tinted windows, so she can't see who's behind the wheel, but she thinks she recognizes the car. More than once, she's seen it, or one just like it on her drive to work, and it's unlikely they have the same commute. As a news anchor, most days Jody reports to her studio between 3 and 4 a.m. The roads are almost always empty. Now, on her run, she doesn't even have the security of her own car. She's out in the open. She picks up her pace, racing towards home. She hopes with every step, someone doesn't get out of the car and follow her into her apartment. Even as she arrives and locks the front door behind her, 
by the time she calls her mother Jane, Jody's inconsolable. Jane lives back in Minnesota, where Jody grew up, so she can't be there to comfort her daughter in person. But before she ends the call, she encourages Jody to file a report, saying that she's being stalked with police. And Jody does file the report, but the reaction she gets has a lot to do with her fame. Jody is a local celebrity, and she's not shy about her ambitions. She wants to be a national news broadcaster one day, and she keeps a step-by-step -step plan for how to make that happen in her diary. The to-do list includes toning down her Minnesota accent, losing 10 pounds, and channeling the spirit of her idol, newscaster Paula Zahn. At only 26 years old, Jody's right on track. After only a year on the air, the show she anchors, KIMT's Daybreak, is among the highest rated morning shows in the Midwest. Young, attractive, and single by choice, her round face, big green eyes, and fluffy blonde bob are instantly recognizable. And she's always been approachable too. She has a charm that screams, come talk to me. As Jody's older sister says, she's Minnesota nice. She never has a bad word to say about anyone, and she rarely says no to a good time. Her career is her priority, but she loves to water ski and visit the bars in Mason City. Her local bartender describes Jody as a Bud Light girl because it's her drink of choice, and it also describes her personality. Effervescent, light, and has mass appeal. There are downsides to Jody's openness though, it can be hard for her to set and maintain boundaries. And sometimes she overshares pieces of her life at bars and on air. But most importantly, by 1995, residents of Mason City feel entitled to Jody's time and attention. It's common for journalists to experience harassment. There are, of course, varying degrees, and it doesn't always look the same. But fellow TV journalist Beth Bednar wrote a book on Jody's case called Dead Air. In it, she quotes forensic psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz, who says the concern isn't if an anchor woman will have stalkers, but how many. The younger you are, the more likely you'll be targeted. And the higher the number of stalkers, the more likely one will turn violent. And yet, after Jody files her reports that she's being followed, officials dismiss her concerns on the grounds that whoever's following her is most likely a fan. Which is mind-boggling to me, because so what if they are? As someone who's in the public eye, I'm acutely aware of the fact that a person can be a fan of yours, of your work, and still be dangerous. Jody doesn't know who's in this truck, and neither do the police. And it's not just the truck that's concerning Jody. At a certain point, she starts getting strange phone calls that she can't trace. Now, not much is known about these calls, so I don't know how frequent they were. I can't even say if there was someone on the other end of the line when she picked up. But I will say that combined with the cars following her, they really scared Jody. Honestly, they'd scare me too. Without the help of police, Jody takes precautions into her own hands. When she can, she asks people to escort her to work on her 3 a.m. drives. 
and in March 1995, she enrolls in a self-defense class. She tells the instructor that an incident that happened a few months back made her realize she needed to learn how to protect herself. I don't know what that incident was, but it's possible that there was a lot happening in Jodi's life that she didn't talk about. After going through all the appropriate channels with police, maybe she felt like she was on her own. Three months after completing her self-defense class, Jodi writes to her friend and mentions that she's still scared she's being stalked. And then on June 27, 1995, Jodi doesn't show up for work. In and of itself, this isn't that unusual. Like I said, Jodi usually needs to get to the station between 3 and 4 a.m., so really early. It's pretty common for employees to oversleep. Jodi and her assistant producer, Amy Coons, actually have an agreement. If one of them doesn't show up on time, they call the other person to make sure they're at least awake. More often than not, it's Amy calling Jodi. So today, Amy's not surprised that Jodi's running late. Jodi attended a golf tournament the day before, organized by Mason City's Chamber of Commerce. These usually end in a boozy dinner, and since the tournament got rained out, the entire event turned into a boozy dinner. A little after 4 a.m., Amy dials Jodi's landline, expecting her friend to be hungover, in bed, or on the bathroom floor. The call goes as many have before. Jodi picks up, Amy tells her it's past four and she needs to get to work now. According to Amy, Jodi sounds lucid, healthy, and concerned that she's late, but she doesn't mention oversleeping. Amy assumes that detail. She also assumes that Jodi is home alone. Amy hangs up, a little irritated that she'll be picking up some prep work for their 6 a.m. broadcast, but she expects to see Jodi soon. Except an hour and a half goes by and Jodi still hasn't shown up. Amy calls Jodi's apartment again, but the phone rings off the hook. Frustrated and running out of time before the cameras roll, Amy gets into hair and makeup to anchor Daybreak herself. By the time she hits a mid-show break, Amy's worried. She sends a coworker to go check on Jodi. They knock on her apartment door, but there's no answer. After the broadcast ends, a friend of Jody's named John Van Sice calls the station and asks why she wasn't on the air. Nobody has an answer for him, but Amy considers it unusual. To the best of her knowledge, John's never checked in on Jody at work before. Around 7 a.m., Jody's coworkers call the police and ask for a welfare check. She's been unaccounted for for over three hours. When officials arrive at her apartment at 7.16 a.m., they find a crime scene outside. And the evidence suggests the unthinkable. Jody Hoosentrout was kidnapped, possibly murdered. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
On June 27, 1995, after basically ignoring Jody Husentrude's reports of being stalked, police arrive at a crime scene outside of her apartment. The evidence suggests the 27-year-old news anchor was kidnapped. At 7.16 a.m., Jody's red Miata convertible is parked in its usual spot, a couple yards from her apartment. Inches away from the driver's side door, the key to the ignition is laying on the ground, bent in half. There's a dent in the convertible's cloth roof, high heel marks in the mud nearby, and a bloody palm print on the hood. Scattered on the ground, police find stray earrings, a can of hairspray, a blow dryer, and a red pump with a gold embellishment. Police take photos of everything, and a pretty clear picture of what happened starts falling into place. It looks like Jody was taken by surprise from behind and then dragged through the mud across the parking lot. She fought back using whatever items were at her disposal, but her attacker overpowered her. During the struggle, someone was forced against the car, their head denting the roof, their clothes wiping rain off the door. Looking around, investigators notice the car is clearly visible from many other apartments in the complex. Even if no one saw anything, if Jody screamed, someone would have heard. So officers start questioning neighbors and collecting prints. As they do, Jody's friend, John Van Sice, arrives at the scene. John's the same friend who called the news station looking for her. He's apparently been out on a routine run with friends. But his arrival seems bizarrely coincidental, considering he tells investigators that he spent the night before with Jody. According to John, Jody stopped by his place after her charity event to watch a video of her recent surprise birthday party. John threw the party and hired a friend to film it. Jody arrived at his place sometime around 9 p.m. They laughed, had a few beers, and then Jody went home around midnight. As John's telling the story, his account is pretty muddled. It's filled with a lot of tangents. And these could just be symptoms of shock, considering everything he walked in on. But he almost exclusively speaks about Jody in the past tense. And he makes one very bold, very clear statement to police. He says he was the last person to see Jody alive. Now, to be clear, at this point, Jody hasn't even been declared missing yet, much less dead. Officers still haven't even scoured her apartment. John eventually leaves, and officials eventually do search Jody's place, where they find a couple of things that don't make sense. The dishes aren't done. There are beer cans in the sink. This isn't unusual for a 20-something living alone, but the beer isn't Bud Light. It's a brand Jody's friends later tell officers she doesn't drink. A couple more details stand out, like the fact that Jody's bed is fully made, which is strange for someone who was running extremely late. And in the bathroom, the toilet seat is up. Now, one explanation is Jody drank too much, never went to bed, and spent the night on the bathroom floor afraid she might vomit. Or maybe she just fell asleep on her couch watching television. I've certainly been there before. But this wouldn't totally align with some other accounts police receive. 
a friend reportedly spoke to her on the phone around 8 p.m. So between Jody's charity event and John Van Sice's home, he didn't mention Jody sounding drunk. And John said Jody had a few beers at his place, but claimed she drove herself both to and from his apartment. And Amy Coons mentioned Jody sounded lucid when she called around 4 a.m. Another possibility is Jody spent the night elsewhere, stopped home to grab a few things before work, and happened to be there when Amy called. But investigators find evidence to suggest a much more chilling explanation. The night before she disappeared, there was a man in Jody's apartment, possibly waiting for her to come home. As the police continue their search, they find empty beer cans scattered underneath a window in the alley that looks into Jody's apartment. And a neighbor tells one officer he heard a man banging on Jody's door the night before. He kept shouting, Jody, open up, I know you're in there. The shouting ended, but the neighbor didn't know if Jody answered or the man gave up and left. Officers also hear multiple reports of an unusual white van seen around the complex's parking lot in the weeks preceding Jody's abduction. By the afternoon, Jody's disappearance is the talk of Mason City. And there's no denying it's the result of foul play. As rain falls, a search begins in earnest, one that quickly becomes the largest manhunt in the state's history. Authorities and volunteers scour the area. Cadaver dogs visit the nearby Winnebago River. When the rain lets up, helicopters are brought in. Unlike other missing persons cases, there's no need for posters, billboards, or photos. Jody's delivered them the news for so long that if she turns up, she'll be instantly recognized. But now, Jody is the news. In the immediate aftermath, her friends and fellow co-anchors make emotional pleas for information. In time, her story is featured on Oprah, Nancy Grace, and Larry King. It's an ironic twist. As her friend Robin Wolfram later says, this is not what Jody meant when she said she wants to be on national television. The amount of love and resources poured into finding Jody is amazing, no doubt, but it also causes headaches for investigators. With so many people who feel a connection to her, it seems like everyone wants to get involved. Officials are flooded with more than 1,500 tips. And logistically, with so many people who felt tied to Jody, it's hard to narrow down a list of suspects. In 1995, the population of Mason City is roughly 29,000 people. So that's 29,000 suspects, or about 20,000 if we exclude kids, or 10,000 if we assume her abductor is an adult male. But for all anyone knows, they may not have been. At a certain point, the sheer numbers obscure the investigation. Dozens of theories pop up for who's responsible. A stalker, a serial killer, a police officer, her boss, drug dealers, a mentally ill fan, the list goes on and on. Even the most unlikely get considered, along with anyone in the area with a relevant criminal record. But most of them are cleared and none are arrested. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, why haven't the police looked into the stalking reports Jody made before she disappeared? They should have some relevant information in them, right? Well, according to the Mason City Police Chief, 
they don't exist. He goes on the record during a press conference saying the reports never happened, even though they definitely did. We know they happened. You can visit findjody.com and find a public record of her call, stating a white pickup truck was following her. But for some reason, her report was deemed so unimportant that when Jody disappeared, no one even remembered. Because of this, some have accused the Mason City Police Department of a cover-up. This and one other detail that eventually comes to light. An officer apparently keeps Jody's driver's license in his office for years, which is definitely creepy, but not enough to substantiate a cover-up. More likely, the police thought they'd have better luck casting a smaller net, focusing their efforts on the people closest to Jody. And looking close to home is probably a good idea because Jody isn't the only victim of a mysterious crime in Mason City recently. Months before her disappearance, Jody's friend, Billy Pruin, was murdered. Initially, his death looked like a suicide because he was shot with his own gun in his own home. But after re-examining the crime scene, investigators have determined it would have been impossible for Billy to have pulled the trigger. It had to have been a third party. Unfortunately, his murder is still unsolved to this day. I mention this because in the wake of Jody's disappearance, authorities are working both cases at the same time. And eventually, a new suspect in Billy's murder comes to light. A man who's already on the FBI's radar for possibly being connected to two other homicides. A man Jody knew well. After her disappearance in 1995, the investigation into what happened to Jody Husentrout is thorough, frustrating, and fruitless. In May 2001, after six years of searching, authorities declare Jody legally dead. Friends and family don't hold a funeral or a celebration of life, though. It doesn't feel right. There's just too many unanswered questions. They don't know how it ended. Yet. As of this recording, Jody's case is still open and active meaning there are plenty of details I don't have access to, which is standard fare. The control of information is critical in criminal cases. Leaks can jeopardize ongoing investigations like Jody's. But I'm particularly interested in learning more about one action authorities have taken that has been made public. In 2017, police issued a search warrant for the car of Jody's friend, John Van Syce the one who said he was the last person to see Jody alive. Every year since, the results of the warrant have been resealed, meaning they're not disclosing what they found or why the search was ordered. But here's why I bring this up. If the results have been sealed for this long, I can't imagine they didn't find anything. And what they did find could be related to Jody's disappearance or the four other deaths in which John has been deemed a person of interest. Now, before I go any further, I want to be clear. John Van Syce has never been convicted of any crimes, and I'm not accusing him of anything. 
I can only say he was first put on the FBI's radar 12 years before Jody's disappearance. In 1983, there's a double homicide at Copper Dallas Ranch in Iowa. At the time, John works there as a ranch hand. And according to journalist Beth Bednar, he becomes a suspect in the murders after a rumor surfaces that he was involved with one of the victim's ex-wives. The case remains unsolved to this day. Years later, John's working as a security guard in Arizona when he and three coworkers get into a violent altercation with a shoplifter. Within two days, the shoplifter dies from the injuries he sustained. The death is ultimately ruled an accident, but not before it becomes the subject of civil litigation and draws the attention from the Anti-Defamation League as a possible hate crime. Then there's the disappearance of Jody Husentrout and the murder of Billy Pruin, both in Mason City, both in 1995. John, Billy, and Jody were all friends. They used to ski together. John was someone they trusted. Now, I don't know about you, but my friends haven't been investigated by the FBI in connection to one murder, let alone five. But if I did have a friend like that, that's the person I'd want you to look into if I disappeared. Especially if that friend showed up at the scene of the crime. Now, I want to revisit that morning, June 27th, 1995. It's not hard to imagine John intentionally arriving at the scene for the express purpose of providing police with an alibi. As someone who'd been a person of interest before, he would have been familiar with criminal investigations. And many of his statements that morning and after can feel like him trying to get ahead of any damning information. For example, he offhandedly mentions that he has a habit of giving Jody his shirts anytime she says she likes one, which could be a way to pre-explain the clothes they'll later find in her apartment. He also makes it clear that this gift-giving is a friendly thing, much like how he tells reporters he named his boat Jody as a friendly compliment, because she brought so much fun into his life. And then there's John's story about the night before Jody disappeared. He again volunteers this account without being asked and finds moments to drop that he and Jody are just friends. She came over to his house the night before, and they watched a videotape of Jody's 27th surprise birthday party together, an event that John paid for almost in its entirety. Recently, clips from that video were released as a part of a documentary special on Oxygen. At a glance, it seems like a normal party. And for the most part, it is. But when FBI profiler Jim Clemente examined the footage, he noted how John's body language is laser-focused on Jody the whole time. And how when any other man speaks to her, he gives them a stone-cold glare. At one point, John randomly hoists Jody into the air and begins carrying her around like she's a toddler. It doesn't look like Jody has any issue with it. But for a grown woman, that sudden loss of power being pulled off your feet without your consent is jarring. His behavior indicates a sense of entitlement and possessiveness over Jody that raises justifiable concerns. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about the nature of John and Jody's relationship. 
but according to most sources, John and Jody both maintained that they were just friends. So rather than debate what we can't know about their intentions, I'm gonna focus on what we do. John vied for Jody's affection constantly. He showered her with gifts, regularly took her on water skiing trips, and according to reports from Jody's neighbors, he sometimes sat outside Jody's apartment at night scanning the parking lot. Nobody saw him there on the night of June 26, 1995. Maybe because by his own account, he wasn't there. But one of Jody's neighbors did report that they heard a woman's voice shout two words that night. No, John, as a plea for someone to stop what they were doing. If that woman was Jody and John was in her apartment that night, he lied to police. And it wouldn't be the only one of John's statements that seemed to conflict with other witness accounts. His alibi states that on the morning of June 27th, before he arrived at the key apartment complex, he was out running with a friend from around 6.45 to 7.30 a.m. But one of John's friends claimed to see him at a local drugstore during that time frame. And if he was running the whole time, I don't know how he called the news station and asked why Jody wasn't on the air. Most notably though, his alibi doesn't cover the time that Jody was most likely attacked, between 4.30 and 5.30 a.m. And there are a few other details that don't sit well with me either. Like the fact that after John passes the lie detector test investigators give him, he goes out and buys a keg of beer and throws a party to celebrate. Or how when Jody's sister Joanne tries to speak with John shortly after, he's really cold to her. Joanne uses the word unfriendly and says the interaction made her uncomfortable. And then there's the fact that John knew the key apartment complex well, not only because he apparently surveyed the parking lot a bunch, he used to live there. It's how he and Jody first met. Now, all of this explains the police's continued interest in John, but none of it means John is guilty. And to complicate things even further, there is a version of events that could make some of these inconsistencies make sense. John and Jody didn't watch the video at John's place, they watched it at Jody's. This would explain the neighbor who heard a man banging on Jody's door, the other neighbor who heard a woman shout, no, John, the brand of beers in Jody's sink, the toilet seat, why John seemed scattered that morning. It would definitely explain why he was so happy about passing a polygraph test, because it would mean he did lie, even if his reasons for fudging his story had nothing to do with Jody's disappearance. Even if he's innocent, given John's history, he may have been hesitant to admit to authorities that he just spent the night at the home of a woman they just learned was missing. It doesn't make his lies right. At best, they're actually a misdemeanor. At worst, perjury. But maybe he wanted authorities to leave him alone long enough to find the real culprit. And because officials have never found them, they've never left John alone. Even today, Google results for John Van Syce almost exclusively discuss his suspected involvement in Jody Husentrude's disappearance. In the court of public opinion, he's essentially already been branded guilty. If he's innocent, 
he doesn't deserve the legacy he has. However, I do want to hold John accountable for one thing, his behavior. He acted like he owned Jody, like he had a right to know her whereabouts if she missed a day of work, like he could literally move her around anytime he wanted. The man put her name on his boat, like Jody was something to possess. If nothing else, he's guilty of a type of behavior that's endemic in our world today. And too often, stories like Jody's turn into cautionary tales for young women, an example of things they should avoid. Don't pursue a career over marriage. Don't drive a flashy car. Don't rent an apartment by yourself far away from family. Be careful of inviting men over. Be careful of how much you drink. Don't let strangers find out where you live. Don't walk alone in a dark parking lot. Make yourself smaller because it's safer. And I know why we say these things. I know the reality, but it's still treating the symptoms and not the disease. The real lesson here should be people aren't possessions. I'm not saying John hurt Jody. I'm using him as an example. In a sense, all of Mason City felt entitled to Jody. I mean, just look at what the police told her when she felt like she was being stalked. It was just a fan, an admirer. An admirer who, in their eyes, apparently had the right to follow Jody around and scare her. But they were wrong. I don't care how famous or popular anyone is. Nobody has the right to your time or attention. And above all, nobody has a right to your body. Twenty-seven years after Jody Husentrude's disappearance, the police are still focused on the residents of Mason City. And the residents of Mason City haven't stopped looking for Jody. The police, her family, friends, fans, and co-workers. In 2003, two Minnesota newscasters founded the nonprofit FindJody.com. They've conducted their own interviews, funded billboards, and maintained an impressive web database of case facts. So much time and resources have been poured into Jody's case ever since her disappearance. Everyone's still waiting for answers. But I'm confident that someday we can find justice for Jody. I only wish the concern from authorities had come sooner, while she was still with us asking for help. So how can we commemorate Jody? I think a good first step would be the next time someone tells you they're in danger or experience something that made them uncomfortable in any way, believe them. Next episode, another famous name from a very different century. After explorer Henry Hudson goes missing in 1611, nobody knows what really happened to him. Then, 300 years later, researchers find a clue that could unlock the answers. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. For specifics on Jody's case and what you can do to help, please visit findjody.com. FindJody.com is a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating the public about Jody's case as well as other missing persons. 
Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found Beth Bednar's book, Dead Air, findjody.com's video series, The Hoosentrut File, and Oxygen's documentary, Up and Vanished, the final newscast, incredibly helpful. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Maggie Admire, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.